From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome. Welcome to Wharton Moneyball. Welcome to two hours of sports analytics here on SiriusXM. This is Cade Massey hosting today with my colleagues, longtime collaborators and good friends, Eric Bradlow and Shane Jensen. We're missing Audie Weiner. He will be back. Some combination of us are here every week. We have been for eight and a half years now. Professors all at the Wharton School, marketing, stats, operations, information, decision-making, a few different groups. And uh, we're going to start, as we usually do, with a little time on COVID. And then we'll roll into three segments on sports analytics. We have an interview, as we typically do in the fourth quarter, on football. We're warming up, getting closer to football, and our conversation is increasingly turning to football. We are going to start, though, with COVID-19 and see what has caught the eye of the group here. Gentlemen, it's Tuesday afternoon. We're recording in our usual slot. The show will go up Wednesday morning. It'll be replayed on SiriusXM a few times over the week, and it'll be posted as a podcast sometime late Wednesday or early Thursday. At this moment, is there anything in the world of COVID-19 that has your attention? I, I think the, the thing that's caught me is I've tried every week on the show, at least for the last six to nine months, to give some update on the death data. Because one of the things we've talked about many times in the show is I don't think any of us really trust the case data. That's certainly wrong. Hospitalizations we trust in that they're correctly identifying people who are hospitalized with COVID, not necessarily due to COVID, but deaths are probably pretty good of all the data that we have, the best of the data that we have, although people could be dying of something That's saying, else. That's with and COVID also, versus yeah, of, from hospitalization COVID there, but yeah. But what I was going to point out is, is that over the last four months, this is the first time throughout the pandemic, if you only had the last four months of death data, you would say there's a flat line, flat horizontal line. The number of people dying is roughly 300 to 350 uh, per day. And there's not going to be a spike. I said, if you own, let's be clear. I said, if that's the only data you had and you were going to build an autoregressive time series model to understand the day-to-day variation, you would probably fit a horizontal line with a zero slope and a, you know, a, obviously, a, therefore, a constant intercept of about 350, and that would fit the data extremely well. So my question now becomes, given that's happened for four months, I was thinking to myself, so how much longer does it have to happen that I'm going to come, come convinced that we don't get a spike back to 1,000, 1,500, 2,000, 3,000 deaths a day? Like, suppose it's four, another four months from now. So it's, you know, beginning of December. And I come onto the show and say the exact same thing. It's been a flat trend for eight months, 350 or so deaths a day. Are we all going to be like, you know, that's it? That's kind of the long run status? Maybe. That's what caught my eye. I'm saying it caught the flatness yeah. of the death curve has now caught my eye. It's starting mm-hmm. to get to a point where, again, no one's happy with 350 deaths a day. Let's be clear. That's still over 100,000 a year. But that's all I'm pointing to. Yeah, I just wanted to make that calculation because it can sound kind of small, 300 a day, but it does add up. It's like 120 or so a year. 120,000 a year is significantly above what we think it was kind of the average year for flu. For sure. Although, again, you know, I mean, Eric did use the word long term. Flu has been, you know, like like the flu has been around for like 100 years now. 
right? So, I mean, when you talk about long-term, the long-term of COVID is I think it's going to go down because we're just going to get better and better at treating it. I mean, it's, you know, it, it, it probably is going to be stable for the next few years as it kind of, you know, as, but I, I think long-term it goes down. Okay. Right? Okay. But, that- but in the short term, whether it goes back up in any substantial way, what I'm looking for is really kind of what happens to the death rate when we get, I mean, I think we're all anticipating some amount of a, spike or at least an upswing of of covid cases in the fall because it does seem like there's a seasonal component maybe i'm a little bit too focused on you know kind of the academic environment where that's where we gather again type of thing i don't know but but in terms of so that's the short-term thing is whether we're going to see an increase along with any kind of future spike in the next couple years but long long term i think it goes down all right, but the spirit—the spirit of the question was, in your terms, Shane, was probably more medium term. And I'm hearing your answer. I'm hearing you accept Eric's premise that we might just be here for a while. We may be looking. At oh yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. That's right. For a while, being you know a few years or whatever. Eric. Yeah, no, I, I, and I only, I only brought up the hundred years ago flu because you know it. Uh, you brought it up as kind of like this, you know, somehow that's what we should be norming COVID deaths to, Good. or something like that. Well, we use it as a, it's a natural comparison. Yeah. We've been using no, that's it for right. a long time, but you're you're correct to say, well, look, look, long term technology addresses lots of issues, and so if you want to take very long term, we'd expect this thing to go down. But I think the spirit of the question was, we just be, we might be here for a little while, Eric. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the second thing that caught my eye, and it's related, is one of the things that you know we've talked about. Shane's actually been our big proponent on this is the idea of heterogeneity. But the thing I'm going to talk about is age heterogeneity here. And so when you dig one level deeper. Who's dying? And so what you now see is that there's actually quite an increase in spike in the people 70 plus. There's starting to be an increase in the people 60 plus, but almost no increase at all in the people below the age of 60. Almost no increase in the death rate, even though deaths have, again, they're pretty much stable. They've creeped up a little bit. The reason I was thinking about this, besides it mentions that depending on your age, which we've always talked about as the number one determinant, you, sh- you have to be more careful. It also made me think of another concept we've talked about many times in the show, which is about excess deaths. Um, people 70 and above, 80 and above, they die. They just die of lots of things. And so just because 300 and something a day are dying of COVID, let's imagine 90% of those people are age 60 and above, which the data suggests. A large fraction of those people, I don't know what fraction, I don't know, but somebody knows, might have died anyway. And it reminds me of an analysis um, one of my advisors, Don Rubin, once did um, about the cost of smoking to society. And a lot of people think, well, smoking obviously costs society a huge amount of money because people get sick and they have to be hospitalized, et cetera, except it also kills a lot of people, which means that you don't have to take care of old people. And so he basically said from a cost perspective, he wasn't being judgmental. He's not a smoker, nor do I think he's trying to say smoking's good for you. Everybody knows it's not. But he was just trying to say from a purely cost perspective, there's a balance. And my only comment here is that older people die of lots of different things. And if they die of COVID first, then they're not going to die of something else. So this that number 300 and something is not excess deaths. That's that's my only point. Okay, I like the excess deaths point better than the examples because this isn't your point but i just i can't help but ask 
we don't know what the cost of care is. We probably do. We don't in this conversation know the cost of care for yeah, someone yeah. who dies of emphysema at 73 instead of pneumonia at 93. It could be that the cost of care is higher for the person who dies earlier by smoking disease. We don't know. Other Some people probably do know, but we don't know. I don't know. But the sure. same thing goes for COVID. I mean, it, it, it could be. Yeah. It could be that the, I don't know what it, the typical COVID patient who dies, how does the expense, this is actually a good question for the pandemic. How does the expense of that death compare to a typical non-COVID death? Yeah, it's a fair, it's a good question to ask. I think the part that we both all feel safer ground on is the number of reported deaths is not the number of excess deaths. We all know that. Yeah, and yeah. now the and especially given that it's older people that tend to be dying, and you might even say a subset of older people who have comorbidities to begin with, because comorbidities, in addition to age, interact. And so I'm sure someone has done that study because, in some sense, they are excess deaths. Um, but as the again, as the population of people dying has been more and more concentrated in older people, partially, as Shane said, due to different therapies that are coming along, then I think we're going to see more and more, if you'd like, a, given a constant number of deaths, we may well see less excess deaths due to COVID because of the underlying patterns. Mm-hmm. And you put a call out for some study. I mean, I just did a quick search and I'm like, oh, the CDC has estimated excess deaths due to COVID. And this is, you know, old CDC magic, their, their number they give for a number of total excess deaths, 1.139 million, which is higher than what the New York Times lists the total number of COVID deaths in the U.S. as. So probably the CDC is doing some of their 99% of people are vaccinated kind of math there. Yeah, that seems problematic, but yeah, of uh, course it does. But I, yeah, I, I bring it up not because we should read anything into those numbers, but because again, the CDC is producing numbers that don't pass the smell test. I'm still waiting for there to be something that we've called for. And maybe this already exists where in some sense, you know, like we, many of us have my health apps where all of our health information is stored and, you know, I, I really wish there was some sort of, um, you know, probability that would come out of this thing or some app that would say, Eric Bradlow, 55 years old with these health issues, whatever. You have a, you know, 64% chance of this, that, or the other thing. If you don't do this, that, or the other thing, you know, especially around COVID, like, you know, what's my rate of death with or without vaccination, et cetera. I, I, I have to believe at this point, a machine learning algorithm could be built that would at least give a, well, anybody can give a point prediction. We know that, but with some level of uncertainty, I have to believe that's feasible to do. Maybe it exists, but I just haven't seen it, but I can just tell you as a consumer, I'd love it. Yeah. But I mean, if it's like, like a weekly probability like if you're talking about like your weekly hazard rate or something like that i mean how many how many decimal places you want on this thing it's going to be like you know don't wear a mask it goes from like 64 points i'll be happy i'll be i'll take a ratio shane i'll take it with respect to some baseline it's yeah it's a relative risk okay so the the it, it it'd be fabulous especially as would inform decisions like vacation decisions how you travel decisions what kind of what precautions you take when you, go, you know, there are times in place, there are times and places where going to dinner at a restaurant has no 
no real increase in your risk. And there are times and places where it actually does. And we're not calibrated for that. And so helping people with those decisions would be, but we've just punted on trying to track all this stuff over time, right? I mean, the U.S. was bad at it to begin with. They did it while things were peaking. And now they just backed away from it all. So we don't know. We don't know what it, what, we don't know what the prevalence is here in Austin, Texas. Like, so there's no models going to be able to tell me, is this a bad time or a good time to that, at that level of precision to go out to dinner? And you're even talking about that level of precision, Kate. I'm, I'm having the dream where, you know, I know what people in my home field of marketing are doing now with geospatial data and phone tracking. I, I would love to have, you know, let's imagine all 330 million people in the U.S. Let's have a dream for a second. Forget the, forget the um, not just the security of it, but forget the personal. I was going to say, what you're about to describe sounds like probably a nightmare to me, but we'll call it a dream. <laughs> yeah, let's call it, a, I'm calling it a statistical dream where you would actually have motion tracking data at the individual level. You'd have outcome data of COVID or not. And now, and sure, you'd have path data. And now you could say, not only is Cade Massey going to dinner in Austin, Texas, but he's going to this particular restaurant or he's going to this particular you know, stadium or, or this particular concert. And therefore the relative risk increase is this versus that. I can, whether it, it, Break, break someone's, you know, privacy yeah. concerns. That's a separate issue. I'm just saying from a purely data perspective, it's not like if somebody handed you that data, you couldn't do something semi-intelligent that would actually give you a relative risk based on location. You could. Or hell, I mean, if we're tracking uh, individual people, the app could tell you there's a person with COVID 50 yards uh, northeast of you, head southwest. <laughs> Run. You know, you know, I've got no problem with that, Shane. Do it. <laughs> Well, speaking of CDC data and deaths, there was a tweet this past week from Edward Mathau. He tweets at at R-E-D-O-U-A-D, R-E-D-O-U-A-D, Edward Mathau, uh, who, who talked about CDC data, data on COVID effectiveness as observed in deaths. Again, so we have some questions about the CDC data in general, but the, it's just stark. It's just a reminder of the difference between being vaccinated or not vaccinated. And they're showing that for unvaccinated, the risk of death per 100,000 people is 5.49. And that drops to less than one if you've had one vaccination, about 3.72 for a vax plus a booster, and then a 0.23 for a vax plus two boosters. And so the difference is, you're, the, 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 Matthew summarizes it the following way. In the last week of May, a full primary vaccination plus two boosters meant cutting the risk of death by 96%. Yep, 25 to one. That's the math. Versus unvaccinated people. So there's probably lots of issues here and there with this stuff, but um, the big picture is really, really stark. And I think it shows what a crime has been done by all the misinformation and politicization of vaccinations, because this is just risk people shouldn't have to bear. I, I not only do I agree, I think um, if you had told anybody three years ago or two and a half years ago when this was all breaking now, a little more than two and a half years ago, that there would be a vaccine where if you took three shots or four shots, it would be 96 percent effective against pre- preventing death. Anybody would say that's a miracle yeah, in that. science. It's yeah, too yeah. good to be true. It's too good to be true. But, if, you know, the numbers you said, Kate, I absolutely believe them. And those numbers have been fairly consistent and stable. Like, I believe those numbers. 96%. Yeah, I believe it. Yeah. 
All right, guys. Um, what is your sense right now of monkeypox? And is it but because it's on the coming on the heels of the pandemic, people have, I think, probably, I don't know. Here's a fair question. Are people being more or less sensitive to monkeypox because of it coming on the heels of the pandemic? It's possible that we'd be more freaked out about this if we hadn't been barraged yeah, yeah. by the last pandemic for the last two years. Well, I mean, just reading kind of like, you know, I was like, oh, monkeypox. Well, why are we getting all upset about that? And then I like, you know, go on. I'm like, oh, California has declared a, you know, emergency state of emergency and Illinois declared a state of emergency. Yeah. But that says to me that I think that's more about like what, you know, kind of the legal, what legally a, declaring a state of emergency allows you to do, like they do things like distribute vaccines and stuff like that. I don't think that's like the term state of emergency sounds like it should kind of panic or like we should be super concerned, but you know, not a single person has died. Like, like in terms of serious health consequences, I'd, I, I'd like to see the numbers on it. Most of these articles are just like, Oh, well, there's like, you know, 2000 plus cases. I haven't seen anything uh, where this thing has. That's right. That's right. So the, the LA times article about Newsom's um, state of emergency does say, look, it's, it's to coordinate response. Yeah, yep. it could be that that is a positive reaction to the pandemic, that they mm-hmm. realize the, the coordination necessary to get it done well. It, of course, it speaks to the prevalence. I mean, that's a, they're a problem enough to need that kind of response. I think the biggest thing, Kay, that I read in that article was that it's this is why everyone's concerned because of the way COVID spreads. Monkeypox is not an airborne disease. Right. Yeah. It's not an airborne disease. You get it from bodily fluid transfer or blood transfer or something between people. So, you know, similar to HIV or other diseases like that. So it's not airborne. And so at some level that makes, doesn't make it less serious, doesn't make it less extreme, but it does make it, you know, it's not going to have a, whatever we called it, an R greater than one. I mean, it's just not going to multiply and spread at the level. Well, that's, I don't know about that. It certainly will spread at a different rate, but they're seeing the, the, the growth that has been seen already suggests that it's definitely, I mean, I don't know what the R would be, but it's definitely an issue. It's just that it's not as perhaps it's people aren't as vulnerable. It just normal life is you're not quite as vulnerable. Right, that's what I mean. That's fair. COVID. And then Shane's point is at least to this point, people aren't dying of this. And it's, you know, there's a, two or four week arc that the illness goes through and then people come out on the other side of it. Um, it's an interesting public health issue, but it does feel qualitatively different than the pandemic. We're, we're going to try to grab somebody to talk about it on the show. So we can be a little bit more informed about this. It's certainly grown from being, you know, this minor thing in the newspaper that, Oh, isn't that kind of interesting. It's got a shocking name to affecting tens of thousands of people in the state and have multiple in the country and having multiple people now, multiple states now declare some kind of government action to coordinate response to it. Um, All right, guys, I think that may be it for COVID-19 this week. We will come back to the topic in future weeks, I'm sure. But why don't we wrap Q1 there and roll over to the world of sports analytics. We'll pick up that after the break. Come back and join us. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball. On Business Radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Welcome back to two hours of sports analytics rolling into the second quarter now. Cade Massey hosting along with Eric Bradlow and Shane Jensen. Audie Weiner will be back in future weeks. 
You guys can jump in here in the conversation in a way. We love it when you reach out to us. You can do it one of two ways. Twitter is a handy way to do it. At W Moneyball, at W Moneyball is our handle there. We follow all of our guests. We tweet about the world of sports and analytics, and we love to hear from you. Good, bad, crazy, sane, whatever you got, shout out at us. You can also send us an email. We run a mailbag via an email. The email address is moneyball at wharton.upenn.edu, moneyball at wharton.upenn.edu. We read everything that comes in. We get as much as possible on the air, and we love hearing from you that way as well. Gentlemen, Q2 open topics. Q3 will be as well. I want to start off with the big, big news day today, this being Tuesday, but also big news the last couple of days. And one of the biggest news items was Bill Russell passing away. Uh, Russell, longtime Celtic, um, 11 national world championships, uh, fought the color barrier in the NBA, a monster figure in NBA history. I'm curious what your reactions were, and I'm curious if we have any analytics to speak to his impact or his career. Well, I mean, well, again, so I, I, yeah, go ahead, Eric, actually. No, I was just going to comment that, um, you know, I have to admit the first thing I always think about with Bill Russell has nothing to do with basketball, actually. You know, there's that iconic picture I remember seeing as a kid, but I've, and I've seen the picture a hundred times since of Bill Russell, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, Muhammad Ali, and Jim Brown all supporting Muhammad Ali and his decision not to go to war. And I remember Bill Russell being one of the people that was just, you know, a champion of human rights, especially the rights of, you know, African-Americans and stuff. That was the first thing. Second, um, I always remembered that, you know, he basically went his last couple of years. He was actually a player coach, which was remarkable to win a title and actually have both of those roles. Uh, I remember that. Third, of course, you know, you're used to seeing him recently because the uh, NBA Finals Award, not surprisingly, is named after him. So it was always nice seeing him at the NBA Finals giving away the award. Um, And then the other thing I think about more from an analytics perspective is, and I'm sure people are thinking this, is that he did win 11 titles. There's no doubt about it. But let's be clear. No one's diminishing the 11 titles he won. He won 11. He also won two NCAA championships and an Olympic gold medal. So the guy won at every level of sports. But before we compare his 11 to other people, his 11 was in an era there were only eight teams in the NBA. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I was starting to think to myself, which one do I think is more impressive? Like Michael Jordan's six and eight years, which, by the way, if Jordan hadn't gone to play baseball, I think Jordan might have won eight in a row. But that's a separate. That's just my opinion. I have no proof of that. Um, but winning six and eight years when there's a 30 team, 30 plus team league versus 11 in 13 years when there's an 18 league, eight team league. It's not obvious to me which one is farther out the distribution. And if you had to ask me again, um, if I could, first of all, there's no counterfactual that the NBA is going back to eight teams. But if it did, I could imagine, I think we'd be more likely to see an 11 out of 13 in eight than we are to see somebody win six out of eight going forward. I just don't couple, see couple, that happening. A couple of things real quick. So I, I, think that, I think that's exactly the right way to think about it. And we should be a place where we can think about that a little more rigorously. I want to push you a little bit. One, I, I don't think Jordan wins eight in a row. That's a nice counterfactual. It's so, so hard to do what they did anyway. I mean, might he have been fresher in those second three because he took a couple of years off? Anyway, I think it's a hard, but you came back to six out of eight. So that's a safe, that's safer ground. 
but also the league grew over his career. I don't know exactly the rate at which they grew, but it was eight in the beginning. It was 14 by the time he retired. So there's a little bit of, a little bit of, a little bit more competition, but I think it's exactly the right question. You were even saying it, I think in the way that we'd want people to think about it is 11 in four, is it 14 years? 11 in 14 years is just incredible. Let's say, let's just say, let's take the midpoint of that distribution in an 11 team league. The team started, the league started at eight teams and grew to 14 is 11 in 14 years in an 11 team league. How does that compare to six in eight years in a, I'm guessing it was 30. Was it 30 back then? A 30 team. And I think it oversimplifies the calculus. I mean, the simplest calculation is, yeah, you just start, you know, you just divide by the number of teams and that's kind of the the odds of every team winning or something like that. Oh, no, no, no. We know that's not going to be the, you know, I I mean, I, it, it, you know, the more complicated, I think sophisticated approach to D would be to kind of come up with some sort of measure of parity. I mean, I don't know enough about basketball to know what parity was like back then. The fact that a team won 11 out of 13, even with the legendary Bill Russell at the helm suggests that, you know, the parity was maybe an issue back in back in the day um and you know obviously there's a lot of different dynamics now that keep the those types of things from happening um you know but i you know and you can start kind of applying this to other sports you know like you know we were having a text day i you know i'm like is bill russell the the yogi berra of basketball you know yogi berra won like 10 world series a number that is inconceivable these days but how many teams did they play against and they had to go through like one playoff series to do but it. But it was a lot. Year. It was also a lot. I agree with you. I, look, of course, I'm not going to deny that, even though I'd like to think of they all count for the Yankees. <laughs> but the reality also is they had the way, the way it was harder to make the playoffs back then, too. So you actually had harder to for win. the Yankees. I mean, again, the parity between teams was very. No, no I just desperate. mean. Yeah, no, no. That, that's absolutely fair. But you had to. There was no wild card and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. So it was harder to make the playoffs. So let's, um, let's, 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 let's just tackle for a second how we would do this analysis. So forget the dist- let's forget the distribution of team strength for the moment. Let's simplify away from that. Mm-hmm. Um, let's stay with the more parsimonious test, which is just how does moving from, let's just call it 11 teams in the league and the average of his. Let's say it's tripling. The number of teams tripled from 10 to 30, just for round numbers. Okay. Let's say it went from 10 to 30 for round numbers. How do we compare? I mean, just build it out for like real quickly as statisticians, how would you expect the chance? Because you would, it wouldn't just be an even divide by 10 versus divide by 30, right? We wouldn't expect the teams to have equivalent. It's something about the extreme. It's the probability of these extreme observations arising, which are the really good teams, right? Which is obviously going to increase in the sample size. It's some it's something like that. So yeah, I, I just think it, it, it's it's not an easy back of the envelope calculation to do at all correctly, because I think that it's, it's not just even about the max team ability versus That's the right. mean team, but it's really the, you, you need almost the entire distribution of team right. strengths. And, you know, you need kind of basically that latent distribution to do, or, you know, some estimate of that distribution and how it changes it's normal, over time. It's normal and that is constant across the two setups. And you're just adding like a bunch more teams, but it can't yeah. stay constant because you're, you know, adding teams means, you know, those, I mean, you can't just insert players of equal ability onto those teams. I mean, we've seen every time teams have been added, they suck for a while because they're, you know, you're adding, they're expansion teams. You, you, 
I don't know how you handle the pool, to, of, the pool of total NBA, good NBA players doesn't increase threefold when you increase the number of teams threefold. So, so I'm not, you know, that, that has an important kind of consequence. Maybe it does if it's done gradually. So here's some data points. Here's some data points I'd like to know and look at, and I don't know the answer, but it would indicate maybe something about how impressive this 11 out of 13 or 14 was. So, and this is easily gettable. How many years did the Celtics have the best record in the league of those years that they won? That would be interesting to know. It would be interesting to know, right? Mm -hmm. Um, It would be interesting to know how many teams had winning records in those years or some measure of entropy of the strengths of the teams. So how many teams were they really competing against? Like maybe one or, you know, if you're only having five or six out of eight make the playoffs, five or six out of eight make the playoffs, one of those teams that made the playoffs might be a 350 or 400 winning team. Yeah. So that so gets really back what, to Shane's point about the distribution. The of real, strength. If we had to come up with some kind of estimate of like parity or kind of the challenge essentially they face, I would look at that actual, the records in the playoff series. Right. Because I mean, making the playoffs, of course, you'd have yeah, to that was going to be another thing. That. But like, you know, that it's sort of like, are they actually being challenged by teams or are they just kind of, you know, <laughs> running through them? Yeah. So I don't, I just, I would not bet on that argument. I'd see, I don't understand the basis for that argument. I, plus, it just pales compared to the number of teams. I mean, we don't need parity to, to make an argument about this. Just the number of teams is so different. I don't know the basis for saying, why would we expect that the, the, the average talent level was different in his era than it is in the more modern era? I don't understand that at all. He, well, maybe, I mean, was basketball maybe, fully integrated even during his era? I don't know the answer. He was like relatively fully into, like, like obviously, no, you know, it's right? Really not. No. So, no. why you know? Oh, you're saying you're saying it's a little bit like some of the major league baseball records, which happened yeah. when the on when, 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 when the talent pool was yeah, like less than half of what okay. it could have been. That's interesting. I like your idea, Shane, also of looking at the record when you're in the playoffs. Like, as we've always talked about, you can't be so outcome oriented. Like, how many series? I know it's a lot. Did they win four games to three? Yeah. Also, also, were they the only stationary team? Like, I know for a fact they beat the Lakers and Will Chamberlain. I think the Lakers won one out of seven or eight. So you you could argue that there was a like there were just two really good teams and a bunch of other teams, and the Celtics were just better than the Lakers were, or the matchups between the Celtics and the Lakers were just better. Despite, by the way, let's be clear: the same era Bill Russell played, the Lakers had Will Chamberlain, Oscar Robertson and Jerry West. That's not so bad. You know, I don't care what, what level of era you're trying to talk about. That's impressive. Another thing you could look at would be when uh, Bill Russell retired, the Celtics actually still kept winning titles, by the way. So that was the John Havlicek, uh, Dave Cowan's era, etc. cetera. Uh, Russell was part of that era, but just the beginning. And then Havlicek and them kept winning. So I, Either way, it's not asking, answering Shane, uh, Kate's question about putting a you know exact probability on it, but record in the playoffs, how many teams were over 500, you know, how much stationarity was there among all the teams. I think there are things we can look at at least to get to some degree of how remarkable was this. I, I mostly don't agree. I don't understand what the reference is there it's all relative and if his performance was just sufficiently exceptional it's going to make everybody else look weak i don't i don't really you need some universal standard because everything you're saying is just relative 
Yeah, though, again, again, comparing across, I mean, you know, honestly, that argument out, over outrules like any comparison across errors is going <laughs> to involve some amount of this yeah, attempted I mean, norming. Yeah. Um, and, you know, and really especially, so, you know, errors as different as the 90s and the 50s. Well, I think that's why we need a little theory. We need to understand yeah. why it would be that the level of competition was so much weaker. By the way, it, it makes me wonder. I was you gave some contemporaries out of the Lakers, but I was I was wondering what it meant for contemporaries who happened to play in the Bill Russell era. And if he was that dominant, then they just got bad luck. Like they, they they're carrying fewer rings around by no fault of their own. It was just bad luck. It's the same thing oh, we yeah, talk I mean, about. How many I rings did Peyton Manning and like Big Ben have? Yeah, exactly. So there's there are there are players in every sport in every era that in a different era would have been much more lauded because the competition was weaker. And and Russell did that to a bunch of people, I'm sure. By the way, I wrote Seth Partnow today to 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 try to get somebody to say something analytics-y about Russell. And I'm sure others have and they will. It's just that this is what I could do kind of quickly. And Seth was good enough to write back. Seth is with the with the athletic now and he's one of our go-to sources for analytics and basketball. I'll just read you his text. I don't think he minds my reading it to you. I just want to give him credit. He says, look, numbers are less exact back then. We don't have play-by-play data. So possession counts are only estimates. But he said the Celtics were sixth of eight in defensive rating the year before Russell came on and eighth of 14 the year after he retired. So this is kind of a before after difference and differences kind of look at things. And they were decidedly average or below average on defense before he was there. And after while he was there, Russell's 13 seasons, Boston was first in defensive rating 12 times and second once they accomplished this while playing at the fastest pace in the league in eight of Russell's first nine seasons. Um, They were 7.1 points per 100 better than league average defensively overall and never worse than 4.4 per 100 than league average defensively in any single season during his whole career. They'd led the league in net rating for his first 10 seasons before finishing second, third, second, his final three. So those are some numbers that are pretty impressive. Again, we don't know about the competition level necessarily, but especially on the, I mean, it's interesting. Before after is the kind of, at least, you know, in, That's right. Norming that the type of norming Look, that you were really also, are talking Bill Russell, about. Bill Russell averaged something like 14 or 15 points a game. He was not a great offensive player, well, but he averaged 23 rebounds a game. And he <laughs> and he also really I, I read some interviews with him after his death. He revolutionized block shots in the game. And so from that point of view. Um, and as you said, the numbers don't lie. I mean, they, you know, the, the diff and diff before after analysis suggests he had a massive impact on defense. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. All right, guys. So that's Bill Russell died at 88 a couple of days ago. Now let's talk a little bit about, well, there's other news of the day. We can say, we're going to save football for next quarter because there's been some developments on that front in the last uh, day, but it's at the trade deadline for Major League Baseball, which is obviously a monumental thing every season. And it has been as monumental as ever this season and even this afternoon. So it was finally determined who Soto go to, who Soto goes to. And I mean, there are other trades that matter, but this is the one that has all the attention now. Padres got it, which excites me because it's somebody other than the Yankees, Dodgers, or Astros. I would like to pull for a team and, and have a, a, a watching, a casual watching interest in a team other than 
the Yankees, Dodgers, or Astros, look, and the Padres. You, you the and Rangers. me both, my friend. You and me yeah, both. Yeah. <laughs> look, look, look. Let's face it. What's a better ticket? Let's think about the three offensive talents they now have. They have many others, but just they've got Soto, Machado, and Tatis. That's impressive. And that's going to create a lot of damage for the next eight to 10 years. I mean, that's an impressive threesome of hitters. Machado's not going to be creating damage in eight years, but... Well, okay, at least five or six years. I'm just saying mm-hmm. they've got a very yeah. strong middle of their lineup. I was even trying to decide, would I rather I, – I think it even supplants the Yankees three right now. I mean, would you rather have those three, not just for this year, even just this year, would you rather have those three or Judge, I don't know, Stanton and I don't even know who the third – LeMahieu would be their third best hitter. I, I think I'd rather have Soto, Machado, and Tatis. Yeah, I would too. I would too. I mean, I'd rather have the Dodgers' entire lineup. I mean, outside well, that, of those three, as well as the pitching, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, I, I, I don't think it may. I, you know, as monumental as the move is, and like Kate, I'm very happy it wasn't the Yankees yet again. Um, as monumental as it is, I don't, I don't think it puts them over the top of even being the best team in their division. I know um, one of the but, things that I know one of the things that our producer Matt Datch has put in there. Tim Kirchin of ESPN. Um, said he claims that the Soto trade may be the biggest trade in MLB history. What I think, that? well, I think what they're saying is, is that this is a 23-year-old player who's been MVP of the league, who's considered like a Willie Mays type five-tool player, and that this is a team that in some sense now has a great player where in this case, I don't think anybody objects if he were to get an eight to 10-year contract because, you know, that's probably not problematic for a 23-year player. And actually, remember, they did basically the same thing. They even gave him a longer trend contract to Tatis. So I think biggest in the sense of, I don't think it's just purely number of players. Biggest at the trade deadline, you mean? Because I mean, I, what, uh, everything you just described applies to the Mookie Betts trade like two years ago. Five-tool player, MVP, you know, f- yeah, all, all this stuff, accumulated cra- crazy amounts of war. Um I, I mean, that didn't happen at the deadline. So, maybe so that's if, if we're sitting here, I'm just interested to change, obviously, as a guy that knows yeah. Betts' career a lot better than I do, both with the Red Sox and now with the Dodgers. If we're sitting here 20 years from now or 15 years from now and Soto's career is over and Betts' career is over, mm-hmm. although not sure Soto's career is going to be over, but um, who do you think ends up with the better numbers? Like, do you consider him as great as Mookie Betts or do you think even as and as hot? Maybe what Tim Kirchin is saying is, He's got even more upside than Mookie Betts. Well, I mean, again, if you if you are going to use WAR and you're going to factor in defense, Mookie Betts will be will have higher WAR. Well, let's talk I about mean, Juan Soto is obviously going to hit a bunch of bombs and like be really. And this is, takes nothing away from Juan Soto; he's an incredible hitter. But I mean, you know, Mookie Betts is out there in center field snagging stuff, or like in the outfield. It's uh, let's talk about stealing it. bases and all that. Okay, let's talk about war in a little more detail. So I, I saw that Fangraphs actually runs projections for war. Maybe lots of folks do, but Fangraphs certainly does. And they ran projections on all the principles involved in this trade. And Soto obviously is the biggest mm-hmm. one. But their projections, I, I'm not very well calibrated for war, so y'all tell me. Their projections for the next four years, five years, are for Soto, 6.6, 6.6, 6.7, 6.6, 6.4, and then starting to tail down to 6.0, 5.5. So taking him up to, say, age 30 in the mid-sixes, 
in the upper half of the sixes. How does that compare? It's you not know? Mike Trout good. I'll say what's, that what's if Trout? those what's, numbers are right. I think Trout, Trout? Does, doesn't Trout have a war of like nine or 10 per year? Doesn't he oh, have wow. somewhere like that? And wasn't Barry Bonds? I mean, maybe, now, these are maybe, projections. Would you project? Would you ever? No, project? no, no. That's, I, I was about to get to that. I wouldn't well, necessarily Trout's even. Trout's kind of. Trout's war, you know, for a 162 game season is averaging 9.6. <laughs> right. Okay. But what is his expected war next season? Oh yeah, well again, he's older and he's already facing injuries. I don't mean even for I don't even mean for for age. I just mean is he achieving? Is he would we would probably never? Well, y'all had this conversation last week beautifully. Right. We're gonna, our yeah. projections are going to be regressive, and they should be regressive. And so we want to look at expectations for him every year. I, I would just say that I, I think your question's a very good one. I agree with you. You wouldn't predict a year, even five years ago, of Trout having a year of ten for WAR. Um, but let me just say, if those numbers turn out to be right, um, I think the Padres will be disappointed. I think, you know, Judge has a war of – Judge has played two-thirds of the season roughly so far and has a war of 6.2 already this year. Um, great years are years 9 and 10 in war, not 6. Now, okay. again – and by the way, I don't think 6 would place him – it might place him like – somewhere in five to 10 in the MLB and more in a given year, but it yeah. wouldn't be considered. No, no, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that. I'm just saying, given their expectations for well, Soto, they're expecting Mike Trout, Mookie okay, Betts. But hold on, hold on. We're, we're, we're really screwed yeah. up though, because we have to be comparing his expected war to other people's expected war. So how does his expected war compare to others expected war? And, and I'm guessing it's going to be top five. Yeah. I mean, certainly it's going to be top 10 in the majors. I mean, again, I mean, I think that's, I mean, if the Padres got, got to have a player that, you know, six years out from now, we're like, oh, this guy, you know, is consistently in the top 10 in Major League Baseball. I, you know, I, I, I don't know how they could be disappointed with that outcome. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, I, I mean, again, it depends what contract they're about to give him. And what he'll be paying. I mean, he's going to be. He's going to have to. They're certainly going to have to pay him like a top ten player. It's going to be incomprehensible. We're not. We can't. We can't even evaluate how. But honestly, you know, again, assuming it's. I mean, if they give that guy like a Bryce Harper type contract, I mean, or you know, kind of scaled up uh, a little bit, that that would. I don't think that seems like an amazing move for them. What's also interesting is um, this might be a limitation of war or not. Is that Given that Machado's on the team and Tatis is on the team, I don't know what order they're batting everybody, but there may be less people on base. And so in some ways, his war could be adversely affected. Let's say I'm making it up. Let's say they bat him fifth or fourth. Maybe Tatis and Soto, have, uh, Tatis and Machado have already gotten everybody off base and he keeps coming up with you know less men on. You know, It's why I've always said that one of the, the greatness of Lou Gehrig driving in 160, 170 runs a year as he followed Babe Ruth. Well, I shouldn't and, we on yeah, but I mean, Soto, like, you know, matches popped in a chat. Soto was 7.1 war last year on a team where presumably there was, like, nobody on base every time he got up to bat, right? <laughs> right. Well, there certainly was no one driving in runs, him. too. But well, yeah. is, is, we is have to look way, at that. Is that the way Major League Baseball works these days? Is good hitters are never on base. They're either rounding the bases or in the dugout. They don't ever just stop. The Is that the way baseball works these days? But I mean, it's also worth noting that some war calculations, I can't remember exactly which ones, 
you know, there's different war calculations. Some war calculations are done based essentially on their expected kind of like contribution. It's not actually accounting for the fact that who actually was on base when they did their Right. That's what I, that's what I want you to do for Garrick. Tell me what Garrick's number was if he had batted, you know, yeah, there's something like that. It's like in, in, against a again with a typical lineup in front of him. What is for the same production? What his RBI numbers would have been, right? Yep. You should be a norm for that kind of thing. Um, all right, so I'm looking at back to fan graphs. I'm looking at the projected standings. Now these have not. I'm sure these haven't been updated since the rosters changed, but they had them. They have the Padres only projected out at 90 wins for the season. And that's in a season when you have the Braves projected at 97, Mets, Astros, Yankees, and Dodgers all at 100 or above. And so, man, I mean, how many more wins could you really expect? Now, it doesn't really matter because what right. matters is are they going to win in the postseason? And we've seen a lot of teams have good second halves and just blow through the playoffs. Um Interesting. Interesting. All right. What else at the, at the deadline? I saw something about the Mariners made a move. The Mariners have the longest standing postseason drought in major league baseball, something like 22 years. And they pulled maybe somebody from the reds that's they're, they're being serious. And so it'd be kind of fun to pull for the Mariners to do something for a change. Anything else at the deadline here, guys? Well, I mean, I guess uh, uh, the Red Sox, uh, you know, a crappy team acquired a somewhat crappy player. The Red Sox just acquired Eric Hosmer today, which is actually a pretty good move for him because he was, you know, he's uh, not need, certainly not needed on the Padres anymore. And sadly, even though Eric Hosmer is, you know, uh, you know, a hundredfold downgrade from Juan Soto, he's probably a hundredfold upgrade from who the Red Sox currently have at first base, Bobby Dalback. So sadly, Eric Hosmer's kind of, you know, just for the Padres is just a guy that they you know, kind of tossed because they don't have the roster spot for him anymore. And he's a significant upgrade for the Red Sox. So this is the guy who had a no trade clause. And so he, he didn't get sent. He didn't get sent to the nationals, right? He got sent to the Sox because he had this. So they had to bring a third team in here to complete this trade basically. Yeah, I think it's also interesting. Forget the names of the players. I think it's always interesting to look at what positions the, uh, the teams are trying to bring in. So obviously the Padres put a lot in on trying to bring in offense, right? They brought in Soto and Bell. They could have probably made the same deal for a top flight pitcher. They didn't choose to do so. I look also at the Yankees. Yankees, I don't care what their record is. They're desperate for pitching right now. Their pitching is falling <laughs> apart. No, it's falling apart. Come on, Shane. They're, they're pitching. They're, they're closer. They've lost two closers this year. Um, us, you know, uh, I, why can't I think what of the closers guys? even mean they've got like 10 other guys throwing like no sub, but no but like they're not one no, whip no not not anymore not not anymore. just gave uh, I've blown a lot of saves in the last two weeks look the Yankees picked up a starter and a closer who's their starting pitching right now they got Garrett Cole um I just forget the uh, uh Cortez and yeah. then three other guys that haven't pitched well in two months so my concern, if you're the Yankees, is when you get to that postseason, if you're going up against the Astros or you're going up against the Dodgers, who are going to have a top one, two, and three, I'm not sure that I trust Garrett Cole, Nestor Cortez, and whoever the third Yankee yeah. starter is right now, who I don't even know who that would be. I Again, my only comment was it's interesting to see the positions, forget the names, at which teams try to fortify themselves. And the Yankees, look, Yankees have plenty of hitting. They lead the league at home runs, scoring, et cetera. I, if I were a Yankee fan, which I am, 
the big concern is the pitching. That's no, and I mean, you're, you're going to be concerned no matter what. I remember the 2018 Red Sox. I was concerned that entire season that they had weaknesses. Didn't, you know, in the, in the end, it didn't matter. But um, I, I get it. But I, I mean, I just, you know, yeah, I, I you can't, you, you, if, if I had to pick out a weakness on the Yankees, um, this historically strong team, I guess it would be starting pitching. But I mean, okay. you, you know, I, again, you know, some of that early season stuff was just, you know, a little bit of regression to me, like, like Jameson Talion or like Jordan Montgomery and all these right. guys, I mean, we're, we're pitching like aces and now they're just kind of, you're saying that they've, you know, I mean, now they're just kind of pitching like average, normal, yeah, normal average, pitchers. normal, average yeah. pitchers. And I think, I think also, if we look at the Yankees, I think when we end up comparing the first 81 games of the season and the second 81, I think we're going to end up seeing, I'm, ma- I'm making this up, but not too far off. Over 700 baseball, which was a fact. We already know that. And I'm going to say possibly below 600 baseball. I'm not convinced the Yankees are winning 50 games the second half of the season. Eric, I, I think that's. I think it's safe to say that that's more regressive than you thought. You you guys it were is. A bit skeptical agree. about how regressive some of the models were in the first half of the year, right? Agreed. I, I was. I you you're not calling me out on something I disagree with. I think I was saying that the Yankees would play. Of course, they'd win at least. You know, if they're 700, at least they're going to win. I don't know 620, 630 ball. And I think what we're finding is it wouldn't surprise me if their final second half numbers turn out to be 580 to 600 baseball. I would say 600 baseball on the maximum. I agree. I should have over 100 wins, right? Oh, oh, they're they're going to be well over. I think they're 70 and 34 right now. So they have 58 games left. I think they have to go 30 and 28 roughly to to get to 100. They're getting to 100. So you're 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 talking about the Yankees raises to me interesting roster construction questions. We're going to talk in the last quarter about roster construction in the NFL with our guests. But you're talking about an exceptional offensive team and what sounds like a kind of a middling, fading, yeah. middling defensive, at least pitching staff. What's the optimal in baseball? If you had to, if you had the same quota for goodness in your roster, let's say you get a good team, um, you're going to slide the quality. Let's say the, the quality ranges from one to 10 and you get to slide it between five and 10, but they have to add up to the same number. You only get like 14 points to allocate. Offense and defense, pitching and pitching and offense. Yeah. What do you do in base? What's the optimal in base? I think there's many paths to victory, but there's also many paths kind of to mediocrity. I mean, I, I bring up another uh, team. The St. Louis Cardinals have three of the top 10 position players in terms of war right now. And they are like at 50% to make the playoffs. Right. You know? Just because they're behind, you know, they're behind the Brewers and, you know, there's a lot of other really good teams in the NL type of thing. They've got, you know, between like Edmonds or Arandado and Goldsmith, they've got three of the top seven war position players in terms of war. And they may miss the playoffs. Is it weak pitching? I mean, one is competition, but that's kind of not interesting from a roster construction perspective. Is it pitching or is it like really weak on the other parts of the other? And I I actually have to look like, so see like whether it's just, again, there's a lot of luck in baseball too. Right. I mean, you know, so I, I I think it, it, you know, it, it, it's not a guarantee, you know, allocating very strongly to one or the other is certainly not going to guarantee success. I, I know what I would want. I would want, as our producer, Matt Datch, is putting the rundown, I would want two extremely strong pitchers. And my concern is I don't think Garrett Cole is the best number one. I think he's a very, very good number one. But I wouldn't I wouldn't uh, put him over um, 
the the Astros number one or the Dodgers number Ver- one. Lander. Uh, yeah, Verlander. I wouldn't or Kershaw necessarily, right and I would definitely not put Cortez over many of those teams number two. That's my concern. I don't think their top two are quite great that, enough. That strategy is conditional on ex- expecting to make the playoffs, right? Because yeah, that's, that's kind of more yep. of a playoff. I'm conditioning on I think, that than a regular season one. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Well, I, I, yeah, for a regular season, you might want sort of a, a less, you know, an even like deeper rotation but come playoff times it really is about your top two or three all right all right guys well that's been our baseball discussion for the day that's been the second quarter of Wharton Monroe we still have two quarters to go come back and join us after the break you're listening to Wharton Moneyball on business radio welcome back welcome back to Wharton Moneyball this is the third quarter another open segment on sports analytics Cade Massey hosting with my colleagues Eric Bradlow and Shane Jensen Audi Winers away another section another another quarter without Audi he'll be back in the future there's gonna be a short one in advance of a longer interview in Q4 Paul Saban talking football analytics new enterprise on roster management super interesting what those guys are up to gentlemen a uh, couple things we've got football just around the corner <clears throat> we've had football in the news. This has been a newsy week, Tuesday afternoon. And my gosh, yesterday we had the Deshaun Watson suspension come down six games. That's on the low end of what people were forecasting. We don't yet know whether the NFL will appeal. Isn't that an interesting appeal process? If the NFL appeals, guess who gets to decide? I assume Roger Goodell. Roger Goodell. So they had they set up this they set up this process with an independent judge arbitrator on this thing, but then appeals go back to Goodell. Which yeah. you know, I, I'm no, I don't, I don't like this. I mean, you know, I, I feel like you know, independent arbitration without it being binding is not really independent yeah. arbitration, right? It's, it's kind of it's, but I mean, I mean, business as usual for the NFL. That's how that sounds like a total thing that the NFL. I mean, it's very on brand for the NFL. I, I, very on brand. Also, I think the Browns. Forget that it's. I, I think a lot of people were expecting potentially longer. Let me just tell you guys the first six games of the season. And you tell me how worried you are if you're the Browns, okay? Now, I'm not saying they're going to – who knows if they're going to win these games? Browns at Panthers. That's not – I mean, okay. I mean, Panthers could be fine, but that's not – they're not playing the Buccaneers or the Rams. Or, Browns, yeah, yeah. I mean, right. Browns home to the Jets. All right? Browns home to the Steelers. Browns at Falcons. Those are their first four <laughs> games of the saw, season. As a cakewalk. I, I mean wow. – I. And then, I mean, then they're home. They're still home, home to the Chargers, and then home to the Patriots. I'm not saying they're going to win a lot of those games, but I'm just commenting. They really ought to. Murderers Row. They may go, and they have Jacoby Brissett. He's not a bad quarterback. They Mm. might go at least three and three or four and two or more. And then Deshaun Watson comes in, and you even mentioned, I remember you said this, Shane, in the year that Tom Brady missed a couple games was at the Flate Gate or whatever. This might be the best thing for Deshaun Watson. It's a 17 game long slog. Beautiful. Yeah, it's not the. I mean, any suspense. I mean, yes. Again, this it being shorter than expected is obviously good news to the Browns. I mean, I think any suspension, the, like six games, even if they do end up going, you know, like let's say they go three and three in those games instead of five and you know five and one, yeah, five and one. I mean, a couple games, you know, in the AFC, the way the AFC is currently configured, that's that 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 could be the difference between making the playoffs or not. 
Yep. Because you know, I mean, I think I think that would that's still losing even a few of those games is going to really reduce their odds of winning the division, given that you know Baltimore and Cincinnati are both in. The Let's same also remember he didn't play last year, so you're also lengthening the time at which he hasn't played, and so at yeah. some point, you know, not having played for a year and a half, roughly is not also something that you is have to... Is he allowed to, to practice with the team? I don't know. He's able to practice through. to the team through the preseason. Um, he but is not during... At, and then the first, not the first three weeks of the regular season, starting week four of the regular season, he can practice with the team. Okay, okay. Do y'all think there will be... Assume that Goodell doesn't turn this thing over and they just go with the six-game suspension. There's a lot of outcry about this. Um, and And... Do you think there's any consequences? Do you think it matters at any level, whether it's fan support or psychological for the player or other players? Are there any consequences if it's just other than the six games, which Eric already pointed out is against a pretty weak slate? I'd like you mean kind of, uh, I guess, consequences in terms of like, like how small the suspension is kind of relative to you know, I guess the issues involved or, or, or consequences the other way, like how many, you know, kind of long-term consequences for the Browns. Of let's put, yeah, let's put it this way. Yeah, good. So assuming this six-game suspension isn't the biggest hurdle in the world for the franchise to get over, yeah. are there any consequences for the franchise, either through player performance or any other channel? Yeah, I mean, Deshaun, I mean, you know, I mean, if he behaves like he did down in Houston, that's going to have consequences. I mean, yes. Uh, he's not I mean, he's, 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 a, he's it's a real chance they're taking that either the, they're, they're making a bet on both on-field performance and off-field behavior. And let me just go back to both are long shots, honestly. Let me just go back to something we've talked about many times in this show is people, and I'm guilty about this probably as much as any of our hosts on the show, we underestimate uncertainty. So what are the sources of uncertainty? Well, Deshaun Watson, as Shane said, could have another personal issue. I doubt it, but he could, right? Um, he could get injured after not having played for a year and a half. Um, he may not be the same to Sean Watson after playing for a year and a half. So I think if we want to make this as if, you know, he's going to be the Deshaun Watson of two years ago, maybe, maybe not. All I'm saying is you have to have a fairly wide, at least in the short term, a fairly wide confidence interval around the Browns performance. Cause also, as you said, Cade, there are other, implications of this suspension that could have an impact on the team. I think it's probably, I think next, I have, I'm much more bullish on the Browns next year than I am this year, because I think also disrupting the team. Also let's make up something here. Suppose Jacoby Brissett plays the first six games and they go six and O and Jacoby Brissett plays extraordinarily well. What do you think happens then? I know they're going to put in Deshaun Watson, but all I'm commenting on is, that can have an effect on the team too. So I'm just saying there's uncertainty. Sure. There's more uncertainty yeah. than normal for a player with football skills as great as Deshaun Watson has shown. That's all I'm saying. I, I think I'm grappling with what in the psychologist called uh, just the just world hypothesis where we're inclined developmental stages, kids, we think that good things happen and good things, bad things happen to bad people. It's just a developmental stage we're supposed to grow out of. But many people still grapple with thinking that the world is more just. You know, kudos, kudos to you for at least psychologically living in that world, Kate. No, I don't. I don't mostly. I don't mostly. In fact, I think it's you know dangerous and unproductive to live in that world. But I find myself a little bit 
dabbling with that world here. But also, and by the way, talk, I, I, I did, I'm trying to talk myself out of it because I think the reality is very likely there's no consequences. And that's just the state of the world. I think also you brought up something. If you had told me three or four years ago, necessarily, that that would be a monster division. You know, just as you said, winning that division is not going to be trivial. So remember, Cincinnati's now in that is in that division. Baltimore's in that division. They're going to win a few games. Yeah. And so all I'm commenting on is that's a tough division. And Pittsburgh, you know, I'm not saying who knows with Roethlisberger going, but Mike Tomlin's never had a losing game. Yeah, I was going to say, NFL. I mean, they are, Ever. you know, on paper, the weakest team in the division, clearly. Yeah, but until Mike Tomlin's their yeah, coach you know, Mike and Tomlin, he finds a I way to win nine, a, ten games. And so exactly, I'm just exactly. saying every team in that division conceptually, if you told me could be 500 or above, it would not shock me. All I'm commenting on is that's a strong division. What's fascinating is how different routes those four teams take to being strong. And there's no one way to do it. These teams have done it Mm -hmm. very different ways. The closest are Browns and Ravens, both being pretty very analytically savvy. Browns having persisted probably longer and more extreme. But the Ravens pair that with a long history of very good culture. Contrast that with the Bengals. They've drafted really well they got a couple guys they have not built personnel wise they don't have the history they just got a stellar quarterback and some skill position guys and then the Steelers have done it kind of despite themselves because of a great coach it's just four different avenues to I I have two metrics I'll propose for that division Um, I think it'll be the lowest variance in let's call it predicted wins that we may ever see in a division or the lowest range max minus min and I think we'll ha- it'll have the lowest number of home teams in that division that are an underdog in a game. Like, I think you could make an argument that every – AFC home- West? No. Uh, I don't think so. I- I'm not as bullish on the Broncos as you are in the AFC West, and I'm not as bullish necessarily on the Raiders uh, in the AFC West. And I think if any of them played the Chiefs, I think the Chiefs would still be the favorite on the road at those – I'm not convinced any of those home teams in the AFC North would be a dog at home in that division. Oh, I sorry. Against, I, against other, against their rivals. Against other teams I in that I, I, division. I misunderstood. I misunderstood your statement. I thought you were talking about, yeah, yeah, okay. So look, we're, only, we're six weeks away from the first game in the NFL. We're less than five weeks now. We're, I guess we're five, five and a half to NFL four and a half to college, three and a half to week zero in college. We're getting close. It's, and all this talk is just talk. We're just talk. We're about to have some real football soon. Uh, but other news, this tampering thing just came down today. So the owner of the Dolphins has been fined heavily, and they took away their first-round draft pick, one of their first-round draft picks next year for tampering with both – Sean Payton and Tom Brady. So they came looking for your quarterback. You two yep. guys, you two guys have had Tom Brady. Here the Dolphins trying to steal him away. What do you think about this story? I mean, I guess the tampering occurred before he was Brady's guy. So I should, I mean, uh, uh, Eric's guy. Yeah. It was it's first, so first I, year. I, but honestly, I, I'm really glad it didn't succeed because it would have been much harder to hear, cheer over the last couple of years for Tom Brady if he was on Miami than it would have been, you know, with him on the Bucks. <laughs> I, I, I'm just, I just find it difficult because I think everything's tampering in every sport. I mean, so that's, I, I just, I, Oh yeah. Like, you know, um, yeah. Yeah. Like for example, I just forget, Oh, the NBA team, who did the Knicks, the Knicks signed Brunson. And then a week before they signed his father to be an assistant coach. Yeah. No, I know they're exploring that, but I'm just commenting that it is that fine. 
you know, all I'm not making an accusation. All I'm commenting on is, you know, these kind of handshake. We we know there is tampering is a spectrum all the way. Like, you know, or saying like, oh, it would be really awesome. Like if Eric, you know, Eric, Eric Rogers is our quarterback, like, you know, that somewhere between that and what they did, there's enough consequence piles up where they lose draft picks. I just, I, I agree. It's kind of fuzzy to me. Well, I mean, I don't, I don't know what happened in these other cases, but these guys were talking to the agent directly. Yeah. No, that's tampering. And the owner and the owner was much more involved than owners typically get in this sort of, at least as far as we know, but um, it's a pretty extraordinary punishment, but like 1.5 million. uh, No, no, it was bigger than that. I forget the fine, but it was in the millions. Suppose the draft picks and suspension for the ideal gas law. I'm sorry. The deflate gate was of even oh, greater, oh, okay. you know, had even greater damage and was even less consequential. Well, well, exactly. So now we're back to this was our theme at the beginning with the with the Deshaun Watson. The the parody of sentences is not making a lot of sense. All right, guys, that has been a short, quick Q three, a little football, a little whetting our appetite for future conversations. Come back and join us after the break. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to what Moneyball. Rolling into the fourth quarter now. Those of you who listen regularly know this is our interview segment. This has become our interview segment in the last two and a half years. Since we've gone virtual, since we moved to Zoom, this is our interview segment. We are delighted to welcome on to the show this week for the first time, Paul Sabin. Paul has been an analyst at ESPN for the last six years. We've come to know him through his work there and running into him at conferences. He is a card-carrying Bayesian, which means he's a cousin, at least borderline sibling of the family here. And we're always happy to talk to Bayesian statisticians. Paul, good to see you. Welcome aboard. Thanks for having me. Glad to have you, man. Glad to have you. We'd be happy to talk to you anytime. You have made a move this summer. Um, that jumped out to us, partly because we've been hearing something about this little venture you're moving into, and your move definitely caught our eye. We talk about what caught our eye in sports. Your move caught our eye in sports. So let's talk about Sumer Sports, um, and we'll, we'll come back and collect some of your background, but let's just jump right into it. What is Sumer? What are you guys doing? Why did you leave this incredible platform, this ESPN platform, to go to work for this startup? Yeah, no, I mean, that's a great, great question. I think I took a lot of my uh, former colleagues a little bit by surprise when I did. Um, But the Sumer Sports, we are obviously a new startup in the sports analytics space, uh, and we're primarily focused on helping NFL teams optimize their rosters. And so uh, our platform really is one where we say to a team, "You, you can keep your own grades, your own evaluations for players that you know, if you believe in it, you believe in your scouts, or maybe you have an analytics department and scouts and you believe in your system, what we're going to do is we're going to build an optimization engine and an interactive tool for you to then look at all the possible outcomes, essentially in free agency or in the draft and think of what is the optimal roster that is feasible that we could build for our team. And, you know, instead of usually teams might look, you know, they try to look at the big board all at once, but essentially they're always making sort of individual transactions one at a time. And what we're trying to say is we're going to help you make all the transactions at once, essentially, and build the optimal roster in that way. 
Wow. So Eric wants to jump in. Let me just clarify though, make sure we're understanding this correctly because this sounds ideal. I mean, we, we are data scientists. We are statisticians. We recognize there's kind of a, a, an ideal way to do a roster and it is considering all the components and all the potential sources of those components simultaneously. And yet that's a big problem. And even though a front office might be trying to do that, intuitively doing that, it's they're humans. And so it's going to be really difficult. So when they're making free agent decisions in January or February or whatever it is, they might anticipate the draft and have some sense about the draft, the talent. Maybe it's a good interior D-line class. Maybe it's a good cornerback class, but it's just kind of a rough anticipation. You're saying, uh, let's, let's make that a little more rigorous. Let's help you make the right decision in free agency early in the year informed by what you're likely to see in the draft in April, something like that. And let's make all these decisions simultaneously. Is that right? At least let's consider all these things simultaneously. Yes. Yeah. That's essentially the idea. Of course, it's a huge complicated problem. You have to make some assumptions to make it reasonable. Right. But that, that is essentially what we're trying to do. So you have to make lots of assumptions. So you're going to be selling them probabilistic stuff, which, you know, is a hard sell in most front offices. So that's, that's, an, that's an interesting challenge, right? Because what we, the four of us here on the call, would consider like the answer is all going to be distributions. It's going to be probabilities. It's going to be say you got a 5% better chance of having, you know, a higher valuation on your front line by doing it in this order as opposed to that order. Am I thinking right. about that right, Paul? Yeah. No, I mean, essentially, like you said, if, if you're a team and say, you know, the GM knows, okay. I have these players, their contracts up, they're going to be free agents. Okay. I also know that, you know, we have grades on these sorts of players. We're going to help them, you know, project future, you know, age curves and things like that. But then, you know, we also know, Hey, our evaluations of this draft class on the offensive line is really good. And maybe we like our offensive lineman, but we don't love him. And we think we could have better value. So we're going to simultaneously, our optimization tool might say, you know what, even you can cut your offensive lineman because you're going to have better value getting a rookie offensive lineman in a draft. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, you can go out and sign a cornerback who's on the free agent market because, you know, you're not going to be able to find that in the draft, but you might be able to find it if you free up space by cutting your lineman and drafting a lineman. Right. And mm-hmm. so kind of it's, that's just a two-step puzzle, but ultimately, right. This, the, the search space in this is so large that you can't really quantify it of all the possible combinations that a GM could really go to and building a roster. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, Paul, one of the things, so I spent five years um, on our North Star was to try to build this kind of virtual GM for the Eagles. This is, was exactly what my North Star was that I tried to do um, without giving away any necessarily Sumer sports secrets off. <laughs> how do you guys think about the interactions between players and what is it exactly that you're trying to optimize here? Is it expected number of wins or what, it, what is the optimization function and how do you think about interactions? Yeah, those are two great questions. To answer the second one first, we have a, a concept we call roster value. So essentially the entire value of the roster, which we kind of look as a, a criteria of three different things, right? So um, how good the individual players are on your roster, how important the positions they play are, and how often you expect each person to be on the field. And so you can think of kind of those three sort of uh, variables and you want to optimize the combination of them. Um, certain teams, Paul, before you go yeah. further, is there some way to 
boil that down to fewer dimensions? I mean, does it come if you would would is, is war a concept that could bring those things together? Or is that insufficient in some way? So our our concept, like I said, is called roster value. So essentially, it's it's really the multiplication of those th- three things essentially together. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So you know how often you're on the field, how how good you are at each position you play. Some players play multiple positions. So how often you're on the field in each of those, and um, how valuable each of those positions are in your team's system. And so that last part is for some teams, we're going to give them the option if they think they're they're you know very good and they think they have a good idea of how valuable each of those positions are. They can just tell us, and we can we can feed that. We also will have some of our own sort of analysis that we might, you know, infer. and and depending on the team, you know, some teams might want some of our analysis. Some teams, you know, there are very analytically, you know, savvy teams out there that they might like, we know how valuable each of these positions are. And we'll say, great, then we'll just use what you already have. And in that way, we think we can really appeal to every single team, whether they're an analytics, already analytics, like savvy team to teams that might be a little bit more on the dinosaur scale. And so where would you see the real contribution? Do you see what's, since you were, I mean, Kate hasn't gotten to this yet, but we know you were a professor at one point as well, and you're still an adjunct professor. Um, Is the contribution here the data? Is the contribution here the algorithm? What do you see as the most significant contribution here that would prevent someone from just kind of doing it themselves, let's say? Yeah. So, I mean, I think the two things that we really bring to the table is really a, the digitization process of the entire front office. So we're help, we're trying to convince teams and help teams quantify everything. You know, some teams do in a way already, but some don't. So we're trying to quanti- help them quantify everything. Put, you put a number to every, every grade, every position, you know, quantify it all. And then two, and then there's the optimization process and the actual, you know, we're going to have a an interactive application that teams will have access to, or maybe just the general manager, depending on the team, will have access to, um, to then look at, you know, the optimal outcomes. Maybe he can make some assumptions, and it can change the optimal outcomes. You know, we we talk a lot with teams like, okay, we might suggest this player, um, but you had a bad experience with them in the past. So, you know, from a, you know, character standpoint, you're not going to want to work with him again. So you can put that in optimization, you know, don't sign this player and then it'll re-optimize. Right. And then a GM can sort of, and go through that. Now that, that is a, that's a vital component here that probably folks who haven't worked with models may not appreciate. You guys are going to come in here and you're not going to say, this is the answer. You're going to say, this is a vehicle for looking at possible answers, depending on what your inputs are. And tweak the, you know, spin those inputs a little bit, it'll give a different output. And you decide ultimately, but you, so you're presenting information, you're helping them be more systematic in their decision making. You're not saying this is the Sumer slash Saban answer to your roster management. So that's good. That's, that's wiser, but it's also better politically because these guys aren't, don't want to hear from y'all on what their roster should be. So. Yeah, also, Paul, I'm sure a lot of our analytics listeners or all of our analytics listeners here on Morton Moneyball, like the first question also that comes to my mind is, let's say you had, I don't know, five offensive linemen. Would you rather have, let me see if I get this, make sure I get this right, five people that are all graded a five or two sevens a five and two threes? They both have the same sum. If multiplied by importance weights, they both give the same weighted sum. 
but it's an assumption of linearity of performance that I can in some sense a seven and a three add to a five. So how do you guys just deal with the kind of, I'll call it non-linearity of performance and in some sense, how to say, do I need stars at certain positions and how do I, you know, again, let's take the simple question. Would you rather have five fives or two sevens, a five and two threes? And even by conserving the, by kind of, Fixing the sum at the same, you're assuming that somehow it's an additive. There's no interaction between them, right? Yeah, right. A a couple of observations before Paul answers. One, this connects to a conversation y'all had in my absence last week with Eric Eager, which was awesome. Um, And that was, I wish I was there because there was so much to dig into, but y'all did a a great job with it. But the other thing I want to point out is that Eric continues to hammer away on the valuation side of this thing, which is the harder side of it. And Eric is doing that because he fought that battle a few years ago. And let me just characterize again, Sumer is bringing together two sides. It's player evaluation, but also essentially expected player availability via different channels, free agency, draft, undrafted free agents, to say what's optimal. And their starting place is, we're going to manage the availability side. We're going to take your inputs for the valuation side. And over time, it sounds like, and this makes sense because it's a big project, over time, Sumer will have more to say about that valuation if the team's interested. But right now is a starting place, which is great both to just get the thing going and also politically, because which of these do you think is more sensitive to the front office? If they have someone knock on the door and say, hey, we're going to tell you something about the game, which is more sensitive? We tell you the distribution of expected talent via free agency versus draft or how good those players are, how important they are. The second is much more sensitive. So I'm just characterizing the enterprise and the part that they're starting on and the part that Eric is focusing on, which is really hard. And um, uh, he knows that personally. Anyway, so with that, with that characterization, let me, let me turn it back over to Paul. Yeah, no, I mean, the answer, I think your, your question about whether, you know, linearity versus interaction effects, obviously there are interaction effects. Um, And, and to Cade's point, you know, the player valuation side is something that we hope to grow into. And, you know, Eric Eager obviously done a lot of great work. Other, lot, other people have done a lot of great work. We actually have a, a Penn professor, uh, Ian Barnett, if you know him, who's consulting with us and he's, he's working on some of our long-term player valuation models, but that's like kids said, not the initial product. Um, and so, yes, there are, I, I personally, yes, interaction effects, I do think matter, especially in certain positions. Um, how, how we take that into the optimization and stuff, you know, I'm not going to dive into at this point, but I do agree that, you know, on the offensive line, I would think you'd rather have, if you have the equal sums, you would rather have the, uh, you know, lower variance with the same sum that across players than higher variance with the same sum. Which is is the point that Eric was making last week about the weak link system, um, and uh, he was channeling some mathematical theorem that says that, that this is um, the way to get the higher product regularly. Um, so, Paul, you, you mentioned drawing on some other people. How big is the team so far? How have you all built the team? Who's involved? What's, what's the state of the enterprise? Yeah, so the company, obviously, it's very new. I think we have around 15 people total now full time. Um, and so the company, just a little bit of a background, was founded by a hedge fund. A uh, manager named Paul Tudor Jones, who made a lot of money in the financial sector, and really, an op- he he made his money by digitizing trading and using algorithms really to start his trading process in the late '90s. He hired the former uh, one of the main coders of Deep of Blue, the IBM Deep Blue that beat the uh, chess grandmaster, 
Um, and so him and his son were the founders of the company. Um, and then the first hire was Thomas Dimitrov, who is the former Falcons GM. He was there for about thir- 13 years. And so, you know, one of the reasons why I was convinced to come on board was, I was like, here's this analytics company that's trying to work with front offices. And their first hire was a traditional front office person. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. to me, that was a sign of, we're going to have an in, we're going to have someone who speaks their language. We're going to have someone who understands the pitch from the other side, not just, you know, sometimes the quantitative people make a lot of assumptions and have a hard time communicating or or reaching across those lines. And so that was a big selling point. We have an engineering team, about four or five people, and then uh, full-time data scientists. We have, I think, five, five or six and a couple of people that consult as well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And what kind of rollout are you aiming for? Where are you in your in your progress as an organization and interacting with teams and selling product, actually developing product and, and getting it out there? Yeah, so we've we've already spoken to lots of teams. Um, we've gone through a lot of that process. Our initial products we're aiming to have ready for the, this coming off season, so after the season, so January yep. timeframe. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's what we're working towards and we're, we're going to have a couple pilot teams probably it looks like, and, uh, you know, to kind of help us grow. And then, and then as the product comes, you know, to fruition in the coming months to years, you know, we hope to grow. And, and like I said, you know, one of the things I think we have an advantage of, you know, like PFF is they have their, they do analysis, but they're largely a data company, right? You have zealous, which is like an analysis company. We're kind of like a, organizational analytics company almost in a way and you know helping them make decisions um but i really do think like you know if a team has better ingredients right so their evaluations are better if they use zealous and they have better evaluations or they use some more the pff work and have better evaluations we're still going to add to their roster process and if team has bad evaluations they're still going to be directionally good right just have more variance around them and we will still increase their roster, help their roster building process. It's just maybe not by as much as the teams with better valuations. And from a business perspective, if there was someone that uh, you at Sumer Sports thought had really, really good data, there's no reason why you couldn't buy their data or incorporate their data into your optimization engine, right? I mean, in some sense, you have an integrative tool, but you don't have to be the producer necessarily of every input to it. No, not at all. You know, we had a team, I I won't name names, obviously, but we had a team that they said, "Hey, we love our evaluations. Can we just? And we love we love our age curves, and we love all these things. Can we just give you everything? Would you handle that?" And you know, other teams are like, "Well, we want. We don't like our evaluations at all. At all. Can you do them for us? Right?" And so you have the the spectrum of of some teams who love everything that they do and think they have a really smart front office, and the other teams that don't trust their front offices as much, and and they want us to do even more than what we're we were already you know expected to do. Paul, we, we are a business school and every now and then we dabble in the sordid enterprise of business and Eric often has business questions. Here's a business question for you. You mentioned PFF and Zealous. They have different models for contracting with teams in the NFL. PFF sells more or less to every team and Zealous has more of a exclusion, exclusive one or two di- per division, whatever the arrangement right. is. Which way are you guys going about it and why? Yeah, long-term, we want to sell to every team. Um, in the short term, you know, we can't bite off that much year one. Um, so, you know, we're going to have a select number of teams to start, but eventually we want to grow to every team. And like I said, I think we can be a value add to every team. It is a zero sum game, but at the end of the day, you know, if, if we are a value add to every team, which I believe we will be, the teams that aren't using us are going to be on the negative end of that zero sum and they're going to want to at least catch up. So. 
Well, you can imagine that people aren't going to be just taking your numbers and, you know, and phoning the right, not just moving from your data to decision. People will use the data to, to different degrees. Also, because you're using different valuation models, depending on the team, you're going to end up with different results. Also, as you said, you're catering your recommendations to the team strategy. So valuation, player valuations will vary depending on what the strategy of the team is. And so all of these things lead to it's I, I, not zero. I don't I don't know that it is zero sum. It's certainly it's a, it's a long way from being saturated. Let's put it that way because of how differently I think they'll be used. Is there any reason why your optimization engine couldn't be used for other sports? Like, is there anything specific to football about it? I want to optimize a baseball roster. I want to ask uh, optimize my basketball team. Um, it's still an objective function with optimization, potentially interactions between players. Forget that the data sources would be different. Um, is there ever a dream of kind of broadening to other sports? Yeah, I mean, ultimately, we could adapt what we're doing for football into other sports. And, and potentially, you know, it could we could go that route. Uh, and we're not committing to speak on behalf of the business. We haven't made any decisions in, in that way. But that's certainly an opportunity. I think football is just one of the unique most unique sports in, in this manner because of the structure of it has a hard salary cap, right? And you have all this value in the draft picks. You know, someone here has written a thing or two about that. And then you also, you know, you have all these different positions that are just so uniquely hard to, you know, quantify their value. You know, we could go to basketball. I think the value add in basketball might not be as large because, you know, in today's game, Positions don't mean as much as they do on football. Obviously, there is a soft uh, salary cap. And in baseball, there's you know hardly no salary cap. And there are positions that matter, right? So in all these different sports, you have sort of some, some of those aspects that you have in football between having a salary cap or different you know positions that have different levels of importance. But in football, you kind of have all of them. That's why we felt like this was uh, the sport to really tackle at, at first. There's, there's so much here to talk about. Um, one, I think it, I think it, it's one of these things where as soon as you start talking about it, you realize how frigging difficult the general manager's job is. In NFL. You know, you think it comes down to, oh, did he pick, you know, the defensive end from North Carolina state or the outside linebacker from Pittsburgh in the third round? It's like, that is such a small part of the whole thing that he or she is trying to do. And as soon as you start talking about this level of detail, you appreciate, you appreciate that. I think it's absolutely fantastic and a huge contribution. And I really hope teams get on board. And I hope that everybody is thinking of this as a decision science tool, meaning it fuels conversations as much as anything. it makes things more systematic and more rigorous, but it's really, a, it forces conversations and advances thinking. And it's not like Sumer's going to come here and tell us what to do. No, they've got a tool, put in your information, choose some parameters, spin it, see what it says, change the parameters see what it says differently and have that conversation. That's the way decision science should work. And there's not enough of it at, in the high, at high levels in the NFL. One of the things that we know about decision-making is inputs are so often noisy that if we just, I mean, if we just make the process systematic, even if they're a little biased or even if they're imperfect, just being systematic about it, as opposed to, doing things so differently and inconsistently in one way on Tuesday and a different way on Thursday, just being systematic about it 
is a way to advance the quality of the decision. And what you're talking about doing is giving them a much more systematic view of the market, which is going to give them much better information for their decisions. Huge, huge fan. I've thought that the, the, this enterprise in general has been kind of the holy grail of, of NFL draft for a long time. It's just no one's doing it because it's so hard. And I like the fact that y'all are starting with part of the problem. And then over time, we'll kind of integrate it with valuations over time, which is obviously really, really complicated, but it's a very natural way to go. And it's something that the teams can jump in and participate in, which will make them much more amenable to the whole thing. Um, so <laughs> could I, I'll, I'll quit raving, but I actually love, love the concept. Wish you guys the best with it. We'll hope to hear more from you down the road on it. And it'll be interesting to see what difference this makes with NFL teams over time. Paul, while we've got you, um, the first time I ever saw your work, it was on college football valuation a few years ago at the Carnegie Mellon Conference. And I'd seen some of your stuff from ESPN, but I hadn't seen your, your personal stuff much until that, that point. And what I was struck by, besides your being a sophisticated Bayesian statistician, is that you were doing a bottom-up model of college football teams when I don't think anybody was doing bottom-up models of college football teams. You were early in the move from top-down to bottom-up. You were doing college while other people were just beginning to do pro, and college is harder to do. Curious where that enterprise stands. Curious um, how much you're still working on that. And then we could go a couple of different directions from there. One is, you know, those are, I think, just linear additive models. And so you're a little bit away from running interactions there. How much difference do you think that makes? And then ultimately, what does it mean for Alabama's chances of winning the national championship this year? Um, yeah, so, you know, after I, I think I presented that in Carnegie Mellon, it may have been three years ago or so. I, I worked on that when I was at ESPN and approved it. I, I think I actually got it to a pretty good spot. Um, but you're right. Like, I wasn't doing the interaction thing. It certainly was, was something that was on my roadmap. Ultimately, since I did that, a lot of that on ESPN time that, that is sitting on a computer, mostly uh, in oh. Bristol somewhere. So unfortunately I don't have. The, oh no. Oh no. The, yeah. Well, and the data sources too. Right. So that's one of the hard things, you know, to get college participation data, uh, you know, you can pay, you can pay, you have to pay for it. Right. I mean, I didn't have to sure. pay for it when I worked at ESPN. So, but in sure. terms of, you know, I think the model got pretty good over time um, in terms of like, you know, evaluation of, of performance. And obviously in the college game, you know, if the quarterback's important in, in the pro game, it's that much more important in college. Right. Um, and so, I mean, in terms of like, you know, Heisman voting and stuff, it, you know, whenever the quarterbacks that were talked about, my model was always spot on. It was pretty easy. The running backs were pretty, usually, you know, that were in the Heisman conversations are pretty, pretty good there too. And there's always a few players I was really surprised by, like no name schools that just seem to like, really be hugely impactful to like a small school, but you wouldn't ever talk about them because their team wasn't that good. Um, but, you know, they performed and their team performed much better though with them and, and depending on the personnel set or whatever. So, you know, I actually really liked the, the place that I was in. Was it perfect? No, as, as any model is, any, any evaluation model is, it, it had its flaws, but, but I liked it. Yeah. Well, I, I hope you can pick it up. Again, you need, you need to tell these hedge fund guys to buy you some college data, man. I mean, come on. They're, they're sitting on bags of money. What else are they going to do with it? They need to buy you some college data. And I hope that the ESPN crew 
picks that ball up and keeps on pushing it forward because it was fun to keep an eye on. Give us, before we let that go, give us a little more intuition for, just at the intuition level, how you're running those values. Whenever you say, yeah, my model says these guys are the best running backs and then they're in the Heisman Trophy conversation, or this guy pops unexpectedly. What is it that you're collecting and doing with those data that will produce these results intuitively? Yeah, I mean, so I really originally approached it from like, you know, basketball plus minus sort of framework. And so, you know, you know, the, the, the concept of that is, you know, you have the players on the field and then you look at, you know, build a regression model of when they're on the field versus, you know, and it estimates their impact versus when they're not football, though, it's a lot more complicated than that. You know, then and there's problems in basketball, you know, you have to do some regularization just to kind of, there's so much correlation between who's on the court at the same time, right? Even in basketball and in football, like, I think, you know, I wrote in my paper, it's something like 98% of the time that the quarterback's on the field, the starting center is also on the field. So how do you know which one's more important, you know, empirically, you know, obviously we know the center is not the one winning games. Um, But, you know, so the way I handled some of those uh, things is you can, you know, build a Bayesian model where you have really in-depth prior information. So I would use a lot of charted and it wasn't PFF, but from another company information about you know, the play and the impact. So I would build sub models. Okay. What is, you know, this person, when they do this on a play, how does it impact the outcome? Then I can build a prior, you know, distribution for every individual player. And so then I could look and really be targeted and know, Hey, the quarterback. And then it would also, sorry, it would also estimate the model would estimate the, the variance of each position. And in a, you can think if a little too mathy, maybe for the show, but the variance is related to the shrinkage or the penalization factor. And so across different positions, a quarterback had the largest variance, meaning that they were the most important. So the best quarterback is going to provide the most value to your team. And the worst quarterback is going to subtract from your team the most. Um, And so the model had this nice sort of like built in estimation of positional value inside of it. Um, And so Every every different position, I built these sub models of you know for prior distributions of, of, of positions impact or players impact at certain positions on the field and and their role in the play. Awesome, good fun. I, I really, as a college football fan, and and because I like the way models have been progressing over the years, and you've been helping. I hope I hope that thing stays alive in some way. Paul, one last question. You just mentioned your college football player evaluation model had a built-in position value. Position value is going to be a big part of what you guys do, presumably, because, I mean, just as an extreme, if if you can pick up a position, if a, if a valuable position is available in the draft, that's much more economical than waiting for free agency. But if you don't, if you consider all positions equally valued and you're not paying a lot of attention to position value, you wouldn't think that way. You guys are going to come in and try to get teams to think a little bit more that way. Um, where do you think the league is in accepting position value that, that where you can find the high value things at market right, below market prices and by God, that should be a priority kind of above almost all else. So where that, this seems to be something that the analytics community is feels much more strongly about than the practitioners. It's I'm guessing it's going to be an important part of the conversation you're having with them. Where is that right now? Yeah. So one of the things that we did at Sumer is, just shortly before I joined was they actually conducted a lot of focus groups, but focus groups of former NFL head coaches and general managers. And we actually made them say, you have a hundred dollars allocate 
across all the positions on the field. And there's some pretty widely varying responses on some of those, you know, some, someone would be like, you know, you think, okay, 22 players on the field. So, you know, that's a little bit less than five, a five, right. If across, if everyone was equal. Okay. Well, some of them would be like quarterbacks to six or something. And you're like, what? Like that makes no, like, obviously that's wrong. Right. But, but, you know, and some people were like, I want 75 on the quarterback or whatever. Right. And so you'd have a wide variety. Um, I, but I, you know, some of the people that we had in this, in this, these focus groups, you know, they were, they were people that you would think, you know, oh, you know, weren't thinking like this because, you know, they were old school football guys. Um, you know, I won't name names, but you know, you'd be surprised. And then no, they thought about it and they were thinking about positional value. I don't know if I always agreed with them, you know, Mm -hmm. certain, certain coaches, you know, still love the run game, you know, a little bit too much and they might put way too much value on, you know, a fullback or something, you know, but uh, I think teams across the league are thinking about it now. Are they thinking about it correctly? Um, Or maybe, you know, in the draft, are they weighting it appropriately? No, I still think most teams probably are, um, you know, still going a little bit too much with the philosophy. We'll just take the highest graded player. You know, obviously there's, you know, there's some valuation, like, you know, in the first round of the draft, the first pick is always either a quarterback or a left tackle or like an edge rusher. Right. And so we know that teams are thinking about it, at least to that extent. Um, Mm -hmm. They're probably not thinking about it enough to the fact that, you know, you still see some positions that don't have much value being drafted in the later part of the first round. And you're, you know, you question that, but I do think the league has moved a lot towards, you know, evaluating positions and isolating them a more than they used to. Well, you know, we, we've talked to folks working in say like biometrics and they say one of the advantages of technology there is that even if it's something that a hitting coach, for example, might've always paid attention to like hip rotation, having the technology tell you, you know, it was 85 degrees versus 78 precisely is helpful and, and advances the conversation and makes a little bit more objective what people are just speaking about qualitatively. It strikes me that you guys are going to be able to do the same thing around position value, where even if they're having a conversation, y'all are going to come in and, and make it much more precise, make it much more objective, and it should advance the conversation. They may still disagree with you, or they may still weight it differently, but you're going to come in with the 78 versus 85 in a way that before people are just saying, ah, you know, wide receivers, uh, not a first round position or wide receivers are a first round position. All right, Paul, we're going to have to let you go, unfortunately, but before you go, Sumer sports, what is this name Sumer? Where does it come from? Yeah. So uh, I I wasn't aware of the Sumerian civilization. Maybe I should have paid attention more in freshman year of college, Um, but the Sumerians were an ancient Mesopotamian civilization that are credited with the first civilization to use math and everyday use. And so that's where the name comes from. And, uh, the thought is, you know, they changed the world by incorporating math into their into their society, and we are hoping to change the way the NFL thinks about things by incorporating math into their decision making process. Uh, that's good stuff. It's good stuff. All right, listen, Paul. Thanks for taking the time to be with us. We wish you guys the best over at Sumer Sports. Um, we'll be following you. We'll be curious to hear how things go down the road. But we thank you for the time today. All right, thank you. As Paul Sabin, newly with Sumer Sports, long time data scientist there at ESPN. You've probably seen his work before that PhD at Virginia Tech and did undergrad and master's at BYU. Gentlemen, just the last couple of minutes before we tag out of here, but Eric has been strangely quiet. What have you had to say, Eric Bradlow, who's worked in some of this space? 
No, I mean, I think I like what they're trying to accomplish. And the good news is, is that to get any headway at all, you have to make assumptions. But the good news is you have to be, well, at least to yourselves, you have to be explicit about what those assumptions are. And then in some sense, you get started. And then you peel back assumptions with data. You build more complicated models. You get better data sources. So I'm very impressed the fact that they actually are going to have or, or even have a viable product that can integrate all of this together in an optimization mm -hmm. framework, because that's, that's the hard part. And uh, from there on, it's just incrementally improving every piece, whether mm -hmm. it's the data, the modeling, the interactions, the interface, the visuals and graphics, the dashboard, all of that is part of this. Yeah, it kind of makes me think about like, I mean, you know, if I was doing this as an academic and somebody was submitting this whole kind of thing as a paper, I'd be, you know, like it's such a complicated sort of endeavor right. in the model. And, you know, the objective function, I think, obviously, that you choose is very important. So, you know, I, you know, as, a, as an academic, the, what popped in my mind is I would love to see sort of a sensitivity analysis. You know, you need to like, right. you know, if, if we know interactions are a big thing, obviously, in football, how big does an interaction between two specific players have to be for your kind of like for to for your like optimization to really change like how sensitive are kind of your is your final optimization to some of these kind of implicit or explicit assumptions that you're making and that's sort it, of like what kept popping into my mind but of course you, you you need to actually have the framework in place before you right. can even do that sensitivity analysis so it's but a big accomplishment that, that but that should be a feature of the model, not a bug, right? I mean, you want basically yeah. you want the decision makers in the room playing with the model exactly through this sensitivity analysis because they might be arguing about something that doesn't matter, or they might be ignoring something that matters a lot that they need to argue about. The and, sensitivity analysis tells them what they need to be arguing about. And again, I think it's a real kind of like uh, I guess an implicit uh, sort of benefit of taking a model-based approach as opposed to something that's a little bit more kind of I don't know like ad hoc you know kind of like uh, um, like like a, a deep neural net or something like that where you don't have parameters that you can understand or anything like right. that is that you can actually start coding in differences in your model more easily and actually exploring it better so so yeah I, I always kind of feel like that's a, a you know a real kind of uh, hidden advantage or you know kind of a secret advantage of uh, some of these kind of model-based approaches mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. maybe just building one thing on what Shane said and then a comment um I agree that um the, the nice thing about this also through this let's call it sensitivity analysis is you know as a company where you have to invest probably to make your algorithm better because what you're going to find is if you turn this dial wow you know whoever they would have you know, drafted or picked would change dramatically. Well, that that means you better have that pretty precise. And so I think from that, it's kind of like a self-norming system. The second thing when Shane mentioned about academia, I have to admit, I'm confident if any one of us or if all three of us submitted this paper as joint authors, the reviews would come back longer than the paper itself because there would be no way that reviewers would ever let this get published, not because it's not important, but because every assumption you make they would want some either theoretical, empirical justification for it. And in some sense, it doesn't make it right. But this would be a very difficult thing to get published in an academic journal. And that's and that doesn't make it good or bad i'm just it's just no it, it speak it speaks to the ambition of the entire dev Correct. endeavor like we want to optimize football we want to optimize the game the mo one of the most complicated that's, games ever invented by humankind you know that's and i really do think that they are going at the, the holy grail 
in personnel. They're going right at it. But but back to Eric's first point, it's iterative. And it's something that academics, even though in the big picture, science is highly iterative, we lose, we, 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 we don't do projects that are as iterative as this thing. It's just to get off the ground. They're going to have to build kind of a, you know, just kind of connect the wire from here to there. And then they flesh it out over time. Their challenge is they've got to make it work as a business, even in those early stages. I mean, think about PFF. PFF is a very different animal now than it was when they started six or seven or eight years ago. And one of the reasons they've been able to iterate and grow and become what they are is that they had this baseline, this base level of business. They always had this charting business, which kind of fueled R&D side over here, which has grown into this big thing. These guys have the challenge of building this thing out iteratively from the beginning without that kind of base business. They do have hedge funds, so they do have deep pockets. So I'm guessing they're going to be okay, but it's going to be very fun to watch. All right, guys, we should wrap there. That has been two hours of sports analytics here on Wharton Moneyball here on SiriusXM. It's uh, been a pleasure to spend some time here here at the end with Eric and Shane. Eric Bradlow, Shane Jensen, this is Cade Massey, Audie Weiner away for the day doing Audie Weiner things, traveling. He's our rambling man co-host out for the moment. He will be back on behalf of the whole team and on behalf of Matty Datz, the boss man, and Dion Simpkins, the associate boss man. Appreciate y'all listening. Come back and join us next time. Between now and then, enjoy your sports. Enjoy your sports.